If you'd like to uh, turn in your Bibles, we're going to be uh, in 1 Timothy 6 in the Black Pew Bibles. That's on page 993. Uh, so 1 Timothy 6, page 993. Uh, so Paul has just finished listing off um, a, a bunch of sins, right? He talked about conceit. He talked about envy and dissension and slander. And then he uh, talked, as we saw last week, about the temptation of riches and about the love of money. And he, uh, and he finished that, that, that paragraph there in verse 10 by saying, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And then he picks up our passage for this morning. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So we have this listing of sins. And after that list of sins, Paul says to Timothy and to us, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And when he says flee, uh, that, that Greek word is the same word that we get our word fugitive from. And so this is not a, a casual strolling away from sin. This is a running across the field and jumping over fences and crawling through ditches, doing everything you can, anything and everything you can to get away from these sins. And so if uh, the, the primary issue that we talked about last week was that idea of a discontent heart. Um, and so uh, this, this could be a whole sermon on its own, but um, we're already going to be short for time. So uh, uh, for me, you know, when, when I see that flee from these things, flee from a discontent heart, uh, you know, there's, there's some very simple things that I can do to help accomplish that in my life. As much as I'm a terrible mechanic, I love things that go. You know, I, I like, I love a good truck or motorcycles. And so I could easily jump on Facebook Marketplace and feed into a discontent heart in myself. Oh, look, this looks, wouldn't that be a nice truck? Oh, that's a nice color. I like that. This looks comfortable. So I need to stay off. Facebook Marketplace. I need to stay off Craigslist. And there are things that you need to do to be fleeing from that sin. You know, maybe it's HGTV or Instagram or just don't drive by the, 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 um, 
carols there in Presque Isle. Just, just don't do it. Flee these things. Run away from them. And there's a larger issue there, too. Uh, and I think that it's one of the tragedies of the church today that, that we take sin a little bit too lightly, or a lot too lightly in some cases. You know, there are some things that we take very, very seriously. You know, we, we, we as Christians have a tendency to, to, to rail against those sins that are culturally unacceptable. But then there are other pet sins that we just kind of keep around because, well, they're, they're comfortable. You know, we can talk, we'll talk about pride and anger and an unmerciful heart. But we never really ever get around to addressing those, those sins because they're kind of a, a, a polite, acceptable, respectable sin to have. But what we see in, in James 2 is that it says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So there is no hierarchy, really, of sins. Sin is sin. And if we commit murder, we sin. But if we lie to a coworker, we sin. Both of those actions make us sinners. Both of those actions make us equally rebels against God. And both of those sins make us equally in need of God's mercy and his grace. And so Jesus in Matthew 18 says to us, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So it's better for us to suffer the temporary indignity and inconvenience of going through life without a hand than it is to suffer the consequences of the sin that that hand leads you into. So if it's your hand, cut it off. If it's your eye, gouge it out. If it's a person, then cut them out. If it's your phone, then toss it in the lake. If it's a job that causes you to sin, then quit it. If it's the internet that causes you to sin, put an axe through your computer and go offline. You'll be laughed at. You'll be mocked, ridiculed. But what Jesus says here is it's worth it. It's worth the ridicule and the inconvenience in this life to radically pursue God's righteousness. And so Paul's admonition, when we encounter these sins then, or even when we start to see them, is run away, flee these things. Don't walk, don't stroll, don't meander. Run. So if, we're, if you're walking down the street and you see on the sidewalk kind of a mangy-looking cat, depending on your personality, you either walk up to it and try and adopt it, or you just kind of walk around. You know, I'll, I'll just skirt to the edge a little bit. I don't want to get too close. I don't want to try and touch it. But, but you're not really concerned about that, right? I mean, if you see a stray cat. But in 1 Peter 5... Uh, Peter compares the devil to a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so if you're walking down the sidewalk, and instead of a mangy little cat, 
there's a roaring lion there looking for somebody to devour. What are you going to do? You're going to run. You're going to sprint. You're going to jump over fences and run through traffic to get away from that lion. So when we encounter sin in our lives, when Scripture reveals to us an area where we are living out of step with what God has called us to do, we need to run. Um, Just as an aside, if you are ever in a position where you do encounter a lion on the sidewalk, I'm told that you're not supposed to run away from it. You need to wave your arms and shout. Uh, So don't actually run away from a lion, but do run away from sin. So hopefully you remember one of those two things after we leave here. Uh, So if you are running away from these things, if you are running away from sin, what is it that you are running to? Uh, Verse 11, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. So all of these commands here are in what's called the present imperative. So these are things that you are to be doing continually. So these aren't just a one-time event that you check off or that you need to do once a day, but these are things that you are continually doing. Um, you never really arrive at, at, at them. You never can say, yeah, I've completed this. I've completed fighting the good fight of the faith. And instead, we are to constantly be doing them, constantly pursuing righteousness, constantly fighting the good fight. Um, So pursue righteousness. And and I think that that word is important, where it says pursue, right? It's pursue righteousness, not achieve righteousness. Now, Timothy had been with Paul for, for more than a decade at this point in his life, right? And so Paul knew that Timothy was already a, a, a godly person. So why is it then that he is being told to pursue righteousness? Now part of that answer uh, has to lie in two theological terms that we need to understand. Justification and sanctification. So justification is when we are made right with God. When God says, yes, I welcome you as a son, as a daughter. But then sanctification is that process by which we are made into the image of Christ. When we become more and more like Christ. That's an ongoing process that will continue for the entire duration of our lives. We will never fully accomplish sanctification until Jesus comes back. Um, now, if, 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 if you don't know, um, my, my real job, so to speak, is uh, as a real estate agent. And when you go and you get your real estate license for the first time, you, know, you, pass, you take a course and you pass a number of tests, uh, and all of those tests have to do with sort of the laws and the rules and the regulations. They don't have anything at all to do with the actual, well, what do you do? part of being a real estate agent. So there was one day where, uh, you know, I was not legally permitted 
to be or to to sell real estate. And then the next day, I was. One day I wasn't licensed, the next day I was. So that's like our justification, right? When God saves us, when we are made right with God, that is a binary proposition. You, we either are or we aren't. And on that day, when we are made right with God, that's it. That's the end of it. But then begins the process of actually figuring out how this is supposed to work. So I went in my first day in the, in the office, and the phone rang, and I answered it. Yeah, I want to look at this house. Jane, somebody wants to look at a house. What do I do? That began the process of learning what it meant to actually be a real estate agent. How do I do that? How do I, you know, what, what's the, what does that day-to-day process look like? How do I become a good real estate agent? And so that's more like our sanctification. That's an ongoing process where we continue every day to learn what it means to follow after Jesus. And that won't be complete. It'll never be complete. Joyce, your sanctification is still happening. You're a wonderful lady, and I love you, but you are not perfect. And so God is still at work in Joyce. God is still at work in every single one of us. And he will be until he comes back. And so we need to be persuaded. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. We need to fight the good fight of the faith. We need to stand against false teachers. We need to proclaim the gospel in our lives and with our words. That's one of the common things that we see all throughout Paul's writings, is that faith is compared to a a struggle, a race, a fight. It's difficult. It's dangerous. It can be exhausting. And so that's why he's so specific to tell Timothy here, continue to fight the good fight of the faith on an ongoing basis. Be continuing to fight the good fight of the faith. Because it's worth it. It's worth it. You are worth it. And above all, the king who is coming is worth it. He is worth the fight, the struggle, and the effort. Uh, Now, it's important to note here that while the metaphor is a fight, uh, that's not necessarily to say that we are to be combative, right? I've only ever heard a story one time of somebody who uh, (laughs) came to faith because they got their teeth knocked in, right? I mean, it just doesn't work that way. Um, Eugene Peterson tells a wonderful story of when he first came to faith. There was somebody who was bullying him about being a sissy uh, because he he was Christian. He went to church, and he uh, knocked the guy down and basically punched his face in until he said, I believe in Jesus. Uh, So I don't know that that necessarily had any sort of lasting effect, but um, it, uh, it certainly is an interesting way to go about evangelism. So, fight the good fight of the faith. Take, take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So there's an important, there's an important distinction here between... Um, 
what Paul tells us here, take hold of eternal life and what he said about righteousness and godliness. So we need to take hold of eternal life, hold on to it, but be pursuing righteousness and godliness. See, we tend to get this a little bit backwards, right? We want to hold on to our self-righteousness. We want to hold on to ourselves and pursue eternal life. We want to be able to look at ourselves and say, here's all the good things that I did, right? I read my Bible occasionally. I prayed sometimes before I ate. I went to church more often than not. And all of these good things that I did, all of these good things that I'm holding on to, are what have allowed me to pursue eternal life. But that approach is not, that, that way of looking at things is not good news. In fact, it's terrible news. It's terrible news for those of us who have messed up lives. Because if the gospel means that we have to check off certain good deeds before God loves us, then that means that there are people who are, in effect, completely beyond God's love. In that way of thinking, the demon-possessed, the drug-addicted, the sin-pursuing person is hopeless because they'll never be able to get their act cleaned up enough. But what we see instead in the story of Scripture is that those are the sorts of people that Jesus came for. Those are the people that he loved because eternal life, heaven, is not something that's earned, but it's a gift that's given. So the good news is that it's not given just to those who deserve it or who have earned it, but it's given to those people who will humble themselves and cry out, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the confession that Timothy has made here in the presence of witnesses. And so Paul is saying, uh, Paul is reminding him here, you already have it. It's already there, Timothy. Just keep clinging to it. Just keep trusting it. Just keep hoping in it. Don't reach for something. Hold fast to this. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, this probably talks about uh, Timothy's baptism. And he made a public proclamation at that point in time. And in Romans 10, we read this. If, we conf- if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Timothy, you made this confession. Hold fast to it. Yes, pursue righteousness. Yes, defend the faith. But do so from a position of strength, never forgetting that your victory has already been secured. Back in Ephesians 1 and 2, if you will remember, Paul wrote to the church there in Ephesus, 
And he said, while you were still dead in your sins and trespasses, God made you alive in Christ, adopting you as sons and daughters. So in Christ, we get credit for the sinless life that Christ lived. And he takes the punishment for our sin. And that has been accomplished once and for all. And so we need to take hold of that. Take hold of that eternal life. Take hold of the hope that we have in Christ. This was Timothy's good confession. And this is to be our good confession as well. Paul goes on in verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and in the presence of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Now there's a parallel here that Paul is drawing between Timothy and Jesus, right? Because Jesus, when he stood before Pontius Pilate in John 18, he was presented with an opportunity to save himself. But he would have saved himself at the expense of his purpose. Pilate really didn't see anything wrong. Pilate wanted to free him. And so Christ could have walked free. He deserved to walk free. But he made that good confession. And in doing so, he placed his fate in the hands of his heavenly father. And so likewise, Timothy could have avoided all of this hardship. He could have avoided all of this struggle. But he made that good confession. And Timothy likewise placed his fate in the hands of his heavenly father. So Timothy is charged here in the presence of God in the presence of Christ, who faced a similar but greater challenge than Timothy ever would, to keep the commandment, verse 14, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that word commandment there is the same word that Jesus used in the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So protect this teaching. Protect the gospel from becoming stained and looked down on by the world. Uh, if you'll remember, one of, the, one of the reasons that was given for a particular qualification for elders back in chapter 3 um, where he says, moreover, he, that is the the elder who is being considered, must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace. So there's a concern all throughout Paul's writings with this idea of keeping the gospel pure, keeping it beyond reproach. Because false teachers will attempt to sully it. A love of riches will attempt to distort it. And so we need to keep the teaching of the gospel pure and unmarred and untainted by the world. But we face challenges every day that goes by, right? Attempts to distort or confuse or weaken or twist it. There are attempts to bend and submit the gospel to the demands of culture. We tend to bend and try and submit the gospel to our own desires. Well, I don't really like it that way. 
I don't, I don't really want to love my neighbor. I don't really want to forgive somebody. And so I'm just going to twist my understanding of the gospel so that it matches what I want it to say. And ultimately, these self-centered, self-righteous attitudes are what stains the picture that we are trying to paint for the world of who Christ is. But this charge has a limitation. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. So Timothy's charge has an expiration date. And our charge has an expiration date. One of two things will happen. Either Jesus will come back or we will die. It says in Mark 13 that concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Nobody knows when it's going to happen. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And so as a result of that understanding, be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And so we would do well as a church. We would do well as individual believers to remember this. That this charge and our opportunity to respond to it has an expiration date. The call of the gospel is to repent and to trust in Christ. And we can still do that today. But we are not promised tomorrow. Now there would have been, or there likely would have been, some amount of disappointment in the early church that that day had not already arrived. Disappointment that Jesus had waited as long as he had. But in 2 Peter 3, Peter points out that God's not late. He's merciful. He says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Our death or the coming of the Lord. One of those two things is going to happen. And that will be the end of our opportunity to repent and place our trust in Christ. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for the works that you have done in your life to be exposed? If the works that you've done, if the things that you have done during your time here on earth are held up against God's standard, which is perfection, if your works are held up against that standard, will you be able to stand by what you have done? If you are not, the only hope that you have in that day 
is to have placed your trust in Christ. Paul goes on. This is uh, this next passage here is, is a duck. It's a doxology. It's a it's a it's a spontaneous prayer or a or a piece of a hymn that Paul writes down, where he says, "He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords." So sovereign, he is in charge over all of creation. And then King of kings and Lord of lords. So that's the king over all of the other kings that exist. He is the Lord over all the other rulers that exist. He is the authority that exists above all other authorities. And he alone has immortality. Now God chooses to give eternal life to his children. But he's the only one who possesses it just as intrinsically a part of his nature. This is a part, we are given eternal life as part of our inheritance, as adopted children of God. We are promised that he gives this gift to us. But he alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. So this is a, this, God is often pictured throughout scripture as being light. Um, if you remember Moses when he was up on Mount Sinai, or Paul when he was on um, the Damascus Road, their experience of the presence of God was tied up with this idea of light. And then in 1 John um, chapter 1, verse 5, John writes, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And to him, Paul closes, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So in this doxology, Paul is essentially praying. He is aligning his heart with God's heart. He is acknowledging that God is in fact the ruler and I am not. We want to be in charge of our lives. We want to be the ones who are calling the shots. And we are constantly tempted to pursue our own honor, our own dominion. And so one of the hardest things for us to do is to give that up. To pray, not my will, but your will be done, God. And so by proclaiming here who God is in a way that Paul or Timothy could never hope to challenge, they are aligning their hearts with, God, with God's heart. So God, has, God already has all of these things. It's not Paul's prayer that makes God sovereign. It's not Paul's prayer that makes God the King of kings and Lord of lords. But by praying this, 
Paul is indicating that he wants his life to be in line with that reality. God has the power and Paul wants it that way. So this is one more way for Paul to tell Timothy, both by his words and his example, to submit himself to God. Because this is ultimately what this whole passage is calling us to. To flee sin and to pursue righteousness. Because God knows better than I do what is good for me and what I need. To fight the good fight of the faith. To place our greatest value not in our personal safety or social standing, but to place the greatest value in God and his gospel. To take hold of eternal life. To remember that our reward, our hope, our faith, our trust is not in the here and now but is in the yet to come. Our hope is not in any political system or financial system or social structure, but rather God is sovereign. He is the ruler over all of those things. Our hope is not in hoping that we can be good enough because he rules and dwells in such goodness, in such light, that we could never hope to approach him based on what we've done. Our hope is not in our self-determination and, and self-exaltation, but rather our hope is in trusting and submitting to the dominion and honor of Jesus Christ as our Lord. This is what has been called the foolishness of the gospel. This gospel that calls us to lay down our riches, to lay down our cars, our homes, our families, our autonomy, and even, even our very lives. Because the reality is that we're going to mess it up anyway. That's what we do when we hang on to these things. We mess them up. But the gospel calls us to lay them down at the feet of Christ. God, I've messed this up. I messed this up. Save me. And by laying down our self-righteousness, we get his righteousness. By defending the gospel rather than our self-interest, we participate in his victory. And by laying down our lives during our time here on earth, we are given eternal life. And friends, that's a wonderful trade, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, we have such a hard time understanding sometimes. And God, sometimes that's because we make it much too difficult. But God, what your word teaches us is that you are sovereign. You have dominion. You have honor. And God, any time that we try and give those things to ourselves, we end up taking them away from you. 
So, Father, I ask that in my heart and in my life that you would align me with what your scripture has said today. God, that you would make me pursue righteousness and holiness and steadfastness. God, that you would cause me to fight the good fight of the faith and to grasp and to hold on to, to cling to that promise of eternal life. That you would help me to understand and remember that my time here on this earth is limited. That you are coming again. Father, that if I have trusted you, if I have loved you, if I have sought you, if I have pursued you, if the longing of my heart is for you, then that day doesn't have to be a day of fear. God, it doesn't have to be a day of disappointment. When my life is measured against that yardstick. Because God, if I have trusted in your son, if I have trusted in Jesus Christ, then I won't be measured by my own deeds. But instead, God, I will be judged according to what Christ did. Perfect. Blameless. Father, help this gospel truth, help this love to take root in my life and bear fruit. Help it to bear fruit in how I worship you. Help it to bear fruit in how I pray to you. Help it to bear fruit in how I treat the people around me. So that people in every part of my life, in every sphere of my life, God, help them to see that fruit. And help them to be drawn to you through my life. Help them to be drawn to you through our lives, individually. And help them to be drawn to you through our life collectively as a church. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.